0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why UnitedHealthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
1: Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore of World Soccer, and Seb Stafford Bloor of Tifo Football. You don't have to be a clairvoyant to visualise the scene at St James's Park on Sunday. Newcastle under new and rightly controversial ownership, everyone ignoring the irony of the theme from local hero blasting out over the speakers. There'll be talk of a club reborn, and sadly, a show of theatrical gratitude. In short, hope will collide with hype, desperation with self-delusion. Seb, it's a sensitive area,
2: obviously, but that's a dangerous mixture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so also because I, I feel as if in the days since the takeover was confirmed... Newcastle's passage to the top of the game has been kind of taken for granted. And almost as if the in-between process that occurs, that will have to occur now, isn't really relevant. You've got a lot of money, therefore you're going to win lots of things. It's not really true. And I, I think it's combustible in a way because you've got lots of different strands to story. Obviously, by the time this podcast is released, we might have a resolution to Steve Bruce's future. Not sure about that yet. Recording on Thursday morning. But there are a lot of unanswered questions beyond the macro unanswered questions, which are much more important and much more concerning. From a purely footballing perspective, we have no idea really yet about what the shape of this project in inverted commas is going to look like. And also one of the things I I, I think has been lost here is that Newcastle are a bad team. As a football team, they're a bad team. They uh, haven't won a game this season. They are in... The relegation places the Premier League, infant Premier League table for a good reason. So, you have this collision of uh, you know great hope and you know um, wealth for the future versus the bill that needs paying in sporting terms for the last fifteen years. So, it's difficult. And also, no matter how much money Newcastle have, they still have a few structural problems which they're going to have to work around. Like Sunday, it's going to be the, the eleven players on the pitch. Okay, well, when they get to January and they start recruiting, well. It, They've got training facilities that would shame a League One club. So it's not that easy to just become a a big club in the kind of in the current sense. I, I'm sure traditionally they are a very large club, but it's not that simple. And I'm sure we'll discuss why that is. But it's a <laughs> I try hard not to say a few things. We spoke before we began, Mike. I feel very conflicted about what's what's happened here. In fact, not very conflicted at all, feel very negative about what's happened over the last 10 days. So pass it on to Glenn I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> well we we'll we'll obviously look at
1: the at the broader issues a little later on. I just want to look at what lessons are available to to Newcastle in terms of recent precedents Glenn you've got Manchester City, you know, an obvious example of a state sponsored football club. Could they become the Premier League's answer to PSG, massive budget, no discernible plan beyond signing megastars? Or I found it very interesting. Kieran Maguire suggested Everton might be a better comparison. They've spent £450 million in the transfer market and doubled wages within three years of being taken over by farhide mashiri with very little discernible progress.
3: Where are the real lessons here? Well, one of the problems is the bar keeps being raised. I mean, you can say Everton have got through a lot of managers, quite a few sporting directors, a scattergun transfer policy. It's been badly run from the top down in terms of well, the recruitment. I mean, it looks like they might actually find have stumbled across the right manager in Rafael Benitez, uh, who's not actually spending much money because they can't at the moment. Financial Fair Play still has some kind of a vestige of power at least. But the issue is the bar does keep being raised. I mean, looking back, I mean, the, the first example really of this in, in sort of Premier League history is Blackburn. nineteen ninety one. Jack Walker took over, promotion in 1992, they won the Premier League in 1995. So they went from a, a, a mid-ranking, in fact, they almost went down the, the year he bought them, a mid-ranking sort of lit, tier two team to Premier League winners in four years. A decade later, Chelsea. Van comes in two thousand three. I mean, I think he gave it a year under Ranieri to see how things worked, and then spent huge amount of money their first two years. But they won the Premier League within two years two thousand five. They were obviously a decent side when he took over. But Champions League, they reached the final in two thousand eight. They didn't win the Champions League till twenty twelve. So that was nine years to win the Champions League, which obviously Blackburn never did because Walker's wealth was very quickly overtaken by the amount of money being generated within the Premier League. Man City, they came in in two thousand eight won the FA Cup in 2011, which was a decent deal for them because they hadn't won for a while. Premier League following season in 2012. We're now 13 years down the line, and they finally reached the Champions League final, which they didn't win. PSG, they came in in 2011. They won the French League in 2013, which you will say, well, season, they always win the French League. They hadn't actually won it since the 1990s, so at the time it was quite a decent deal for them. They have reached one Champions League final in that time, in what in a decade, so... It's not so immediately obvious just because you've got lots and lots of money. And let's be honest, these last, you know, Chelsea, Man City, PSG do basically have effectively have unlimited budgets. It's not that easy necessarily to go in the Champions League because you're not the only team who can do it. You've got issues in terms of who you can sign. It's not actually going to be that easy for Newcastle to get superstars in the early years because, you know, the, the club hasn't got much of a track record in Europe. You know, it's got a great history in England, but most of that dates back to the 1950s or before. There's not been an awful lot since, as Newcastle fans are very much aware. So in terms of Europe, they've got very little profile. They've not had many seasons in Europe. as had a brief spell under Bobby Robson. A couple of seasons, really. They're, it's much harder to attract players... To Manchester, that it is, to London, it's going to be even harder to attract them to Newcastle. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle's a great city. We've all those fantastic nights there. lovely countryside around the area and so on. But that's not such an easy sell to someone who's from Spain or Italy doesn't know the city that well. And as Seb says, you know, the background facilities aren't very good. So there's lots of things to be taken into consideration. So they're going to find it hard to attract superstars. So you're looking at... They're going to have to build, whether they like it or not, you know, in stages, attracting the sort of players who are prepared to come. Because what you don't want to do, of course, is, is get someone in pay vast sums of money to somebody just to get them in, and they're the wrong player. Yeah, you know, They may have been a great player once, but now they're just turning up for the pay packet. You know, we've seen lots of examples of that over the years. So that's what you don't want to do. You see, you're looking at buying to, you know, promising talents, hungry players. They'll probably find a relationship with an agent. I'm sure they've got agents hammering on the door who <laughs> point certain players in their direction. And then it's a case um, of picking the right agent. I guess the ones who are going to be saying you yeah, the players you actually need one of the ones they want to get rid of
1: yeah there will be or there is you know, ceaseless speculation about Steve Bruce is due to have his one thousandth game on Sunday, which frankly very few people expect him to complete because of that. Are we missing a point Seb in terms of given that sort of rebuild that we've talked about already, you've got to sort an overarching figure first, the director of football and if you if you accept that logic, who takes that role? I look around and I look at Ralph Rannick as an obvious option.
2: What about you? Yeah, he's the he's the name that jumps out. I mean, we we talked about the lack of shape to this Newcastle Newcastle's future, and Ranick is obviously someone who would help define that shape. He's also, I mean, people talk about him as if he's he's you know retirement age. Well, he's he's still in his early sixties, so he's got a few miles left to 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 go. I think this is really difficult because we've talked about, obviously, Steve Bruce, and we've talked about who could fill his shoes there. You can't really do that. Well, you can't define that person until you know the tone of this. Is this going to be a quick three-year bang at the door, spend money everywhere kind of project where you're going to give whoever comes in the chance to genuinely compete? Because if the plan is to spend £100 million in each of the next, I don't know, six transfer windows, it's still not going to win anything. Because it's not just about Newcastle spending to at the same pace as the super clubs in the in the league at the moment or in Europe. It's about making up the ground they've lost over the past few decades to those same clubs. <clears throat> so you're talking about an, an, an amazing amount of money, and that and that's before you get to Glenn's point about who the established powers are and how difficult it is to recruit. So the idea of one of the names I saw attached to speculation was Antonio Conte. You think you must be joking? Antonio Conte is a three-year cycle manager who exerts an enormous amount of pressure on owners to win and to win now. We saw this with aborted negotiations with Tottenham over the summer. He walked away from a club who have arguably some of the finest facilities in the world, who are in ways primed to be quite successful in the, sort of the short-term, medium-term future because they weren't able to guarantee him a big enough punch when it came to winning the Premier League so this is your problem and I think one of the ways you overcome that is to go down the Raniuk route which is to say this is what we're going to stand for and also with Raniuk or whoever else comes into that area you bring expertise because Newcastle have no sporting expertise at the club you know there's only so many more interviews the 10% shareholder Amanda Stabley can give Amanda Stabley doesn't <laughs> two hope so. I, I don't think I've ever seen a minority shareholder be the focus of so much media attention before but The main point is that there is no footballing direction yet at the club. There's just money. And Lee Charnley is still there as a kind of night watchman, I guess you'd describe him at the moment. I'm sure Newcastle fans would quibble with uh, his sporting expertise or what his role was previously. But you've got to fill this void before you start talking about, right, well, you know, who should the manager be? Because the manager represents a different set of values and you can't answer one question without first answering the other. So... It's difficult, Mike. It's it's harder than it looks. And I think your first question was about sort of the, the conflict between hope and hype and expectation. And I think this is the first real test because if you're expecting an Antonio Conte to walk through the door and instead you get Frank Lampard, well that's immediately a little bit of a, a different tone, isn't it? So it's it's interesting.
1: Mm, what about the managerial situation, Glenn? Is immediate availability a factor, then you're talking about you know, Lucien Favre, who, by the way, is a far better manager than some people give him credit for, or even Eddie Howe, who seems to be waiting to cherry-pick his next job, understandably. Or is it someone who's already in post and impressing? You know, Brendan Rodgers, who plays the media really well, has basically said he has no interest, he's fully committed to Leicester. Graham Potter's mentioned... Steven Gerrard, as Seb hinted there, Frank
3: Lampard on the fringes of things. Where would you go?
2: Hmm.
3: It's a fascinating situation. A bit, you're a bit like playing football manager with, with real people, aren't you? But without some restrictions placed in football manager. I think mean, you do, in a way, have to have the director of football sorted first since they've been involved in making the appointment, one would assume. But, I mean, we've all seen clubs where that doesn't necessarily work out that way. You, you are looking really at an overhaul job so I think Seb's right Concey's Con the wrong sort of person you, you've got to overhaul the team you've got to overhaul some of the background so, so you need someone who's going to work with whoever the sporting director is they may have someone in mind well they may be thinking about getting someone in mind it does look like the wheels move relatively slowly there because decisions aren't being made by the 10% shareholder, but by the um, people far away who therefore have to be persuaded each time every time a decision is coming up these are the right people to pick Interesting that Rogers said no, I can understand that. It's, it's not an immediately attractive prospect if you're at Leicester, which is you know, in, in better shape at the moment. I don't think you'd necessarily prize Potter away when you consider the op- options he may have coming up. I mean, I suspect he might be waiting to see what's going to happen at Arsenal in the, in the immediate term. Gerrard's a tempting idea. Yeah, once you've achieved the certain amount of things that can be achieved at Rangers, but again, you wouldn't get him, I, I doubt if you'd get him in mid-season, particularly if you look at the way when Brendan left, left Celtic, he obviously burned a lot of bridges there and, and lost to his popularity. I can't see Stephen Joe doing that too great. They may end up having to get somebody to sort of hold to the end of the season. I mean, to be honest, if they can't make a decision by the weekend and Steve Bruce stays in place and wins, you could see him hanging on for a while. Though clearly an easy win with the fan base is to, is to get rid of Steve Bruce because... Clearly a lot of the fans are you know want him out. And then that may be a case of Graham Jones stepping up, who's a you know experienced coach, you know, in his own right. And see how that goes. I mean, but if you are looking at getting someone in with a view to at least semi permanency, and no manager's permanent these days, you probably want to get them in by the start of December. So they've got a month to look at the squad before the transfer window opens. It doesn't necessarily have to be by this Saturday. You could easily keep going with Steve Bruce or maybe to meet the Pulitzer fans of Graham Jones at least for a few weeks. Of course, there is a slight problem. The premises table isn't very flattering, but a few wins can make a big change. But clearly, you do not want to go into the transfer window six points adrift in the relegation zone.
1: No. You know, then mentioned the fans there, Seb. Sensitive area, obviously. Tribalism, you know, we've seen it in action, haven't we, to be perfectly honest, over the last few days. And... You know, again, let's be honest, the weaponization of a fan base is the essence of sports washing, isn't it? Do you get any sense that some of the fans are conflicted by the new owners or have we got a situation where there's an understandable outpouring of relief that they've got rid of Mike Ashley without really... Need or well, in their sense needing or wanting to actually look at the broader
2: moral issues of what's gone on. Really difficult. Well, first thing I say is I, I I haven't observed a universal response amongst Newcastle fans. I've seen the rainbow. I've spoken to Newcastle fans who are highly against what's happened. I've seen those who are conflicted because of it. I've seen those who are still in the relief stage of seeing Mike Ashley leave the club. Completely understand that. Good riddance. Absolutely. And then I've seen what we'll term the kind of the ugly part of things, which is dressing up as Mohammed bin Salman and, you know, putting in Saudi Arabian flags and Twitter profiles and that kind of thing. And I'm really careful because the thing is about this is that it's very difficult to put yourself in in this position because I, on social media over the past week, I've seen different polls which ask the question about, okay, if this happened to your club, what would be your response? And in a way, I... I think it's a, a completely pointless question because I don't think you can answer it until you are in the situation. If you've had sixteen years of disappointment and the kind of ownership that Mike Ashley oversaw, then you are going to have a different reaction to someone who's had a you know fairly balanced experience with their football club. The thing is, is you have to be aware of what this is. Like, it's not, I understand the sensitivity. I understand tribalism to an extent, increasingly less so as time goes on, maybe. But you have to, to know who these people are and you have to know with what they're associated. It's very, very important. And if you want to make a, you have to try and understand why people object to it and what the dangers of it are. And I think also, and I have, I'm not speaking out of tone, I, I think the Premier League have. Failed football in this country with this a little bit. I, I mean, I've I've seen the press releases and I've seen the statements and I've seen the assurances about you know the separation between the public investment fund and the state of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, sorry. But I haven't heard anything beyond that, and I haven't heard from anybody else who understands what this distinction is. And also, there seems to be this argument where, well, if we let one type of owner in to this club then we kind of have to let everybody else in in this bracket. And I just don't agree with that, Mike. I just can't agree with the idea that just because something's happened in the past, you are then incapable of drawing a line in the sand. Because I I, I put this on Twitter, and I I think a lot of people feel the same way, or I hope they do. I would like to know who isn't allowed to own a Premier League football club. Mm. If you're able to prove your wealth, and if you don't have, if you aren't creating some kind of copyright conflict, is it okay then? because it's eroding at my love for the game and it's eroding at the function of the the game within a weekend. Like you look forward to the weekend, you're thinking, well, you know, football, go to the football, see my friends. But then the more of this stuff that happens, the bigger the sense of what is the point of this grows in everybody's mind. And it's only right to ask for a little bit of clarity as to why this is taking place. And we haven't received that from the Premier League. I haven't heard a word from Richard Masters, which is utterly bizarre. I understand that Richard Mars is not the architect of what the modern-day Premier League is. He is someone who has inherited it. That does not matter. You're our chief executive. Get in front of a camera and explain what this is. Provide the reassurances that you think you are providing the general public, the sporting public. It's an absolute mess. Yeah, and let's
1: not beat around the bush here. It is Saudi state money paid or funneled through their sovereign wealth fund. I don't know... How else you can describe that? But I just want to just broaden it because I know this is a subject which has been churned over uh, rightly. There was a there was a line, Glenn, that I noticed from a, a really good balanced piece by Jack Pitbrook, where he said, you can be proud of your club and what it means to you and your community without celebrating the people who own it and run it. Now, a day later. You've got a Newcastle fan writing a song entitled Amanda after Barry Manilow, for goodness sake, which is you know, bizarre in the extreme. Where's your is, is there any middle ground in this, Glenn, or do you just basically have to pick your team?
3: Well, I don't think you have to pick your team. I mean, you will know quite well that some people start with one team and maybe move to another team through various connections. I've never actually been one believing that you are born with a team for life. You, know, you pick it, it's your own free will, you're perfectly capable of changing. I've currently stopped supporting my team because I can't stand the manager who I don't think should be in football. You know, but obviously when he leaves, I will go back to supporting them. So, you know, But other people will say, well, you're not a real fan then, are you? Because you know, you know, I've been the tall key away, so you know, where would you draw the line? I think... That, it's a big fan base. All clubs have got a decent-sized fan base. but Newcastle's also got a large fan base. You're going to get a wide spectrum of opinion. You're going to get people dressing up you know, in teak cloths on their head and so on. And you're going to get some people who are basically who, who won't go or will sort of follow it remotely. I mean, the argument I'm not going to give them my money is, is rather redundant in the, in the, you know, when you talk about the Saudi Arabian government. So that's not an issue. I can understand the, I won't give Mike cashy my money because that's the only reason he was there. And by the way, I mean, if you drew up a poll of the worst owners in football in the last 50 years, Mike Ashley wouldn't be very near the top. Yeah, they're, they're, I know he's killed the hope of Newcastle fans and he's de, he's defaced the stadium with his uh, branding and so on. But they've been relegated twice, came straight back twice. They there is still a club there, you, know, you could go to lots of supporters of clubs like, you know, Oldham, Bury, Rochdale, yeah, you well know, even clubs like Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday who could point the finger at much worse owners that they've had. But so you will get this vast spectrum of opinion. I mean you get it with everywhere. I mean there are people ringing talks about yesterday saying they want Gareth Southgate sacked, you know. So every every club has got its people who are either doing things for effect or they're not really thinking too deeply about aspects of it. And I think you, you will get that situation. But most fans will, even if they're a bit conflicted, will hold their nose and support the team and will not try and think too deeply about what, what that means. I think we've seen that with Manchester City. Mm, the
1: boardroom body language is going to be interesting on Sunday, isn't it, Seb? Spurs had to be the visitors and it was probably in character that Daniel Levy led the um, rest of the Premier League clubs in protesting against the the Saudi decision.
2: They're your club. Are they capable of spoiling Sunday's party? Yeah, they're capable. Uh, whether they will or not, I don't know. Spurs, over the last couple of years, have developed a habit of playing down to whichever team they're facing. I think of the, the Newcastle game last year when they, they faced a, you know, Struggling Steve Bruce side who were bereft of confidence scored an early goal and sat back for the rest of the game. It was weird, and I, I, stylistically they aren't so different from that side. So, and also you know optimism and enthusiasm with the stadium is a is a very very powerful thing. The th- the thing about Daniel Levy, I've seen Daniel Levy criticised for this. I, I it, it baffles me a little bit because I, I understand the charges of hypocrisy against owners associated with the Super League. I mean, we, we recorded podcasts about the Super League as and when it happened, and I was very critical of mm. our club's own ownership and the many others who were involved in that process. But it, I feel like hypocrisy is a very clumsy term these days. Like, so because that happened, everything else has to be given a free pass. Like, of course, Daniel Levy should challenge this. Of course, everybody else, every other chief executive at every other club in the division should be challenging this it's not a you don't kind of lose your right to to protest because you're associated with something which was also pretty toxic that's just not how the world works and i whether it's through self-interest or not i i it's it's the right thing to be doing spurs i mean spurs actually funny enough they're a very good example of of how that separation between team and ownership can occur like it's very very possible to be a little bit resentful or highly resentful towards your ownership. Park that for 90 minutes on a Saturday and get behind the team. I completely understand that it's difficult. It's challenging because you want to feel like your football club is the, the, the centre of something good that you're directing your affections towards something that's worthy. And it's very difficult when something interrupts that. But it's a, obviously on a, a much more <clears throat> minor scale, but it's a, it's a very interesting contrast. What Spurs are, I still don't know because obviously the start to the season was highly positive but with a few caveats. And it picked up against Villa, but with a few caveats. So I, I still don't know what their true face is. They're capable, they certainly have the players to um certainly have the the, the players to, to spoil the party. Uh, they'll be missing their South American contingent, <clears throat> which is less than ideal. But um who knows? I, I think we're months away from knowing what Spurs are gonna be under Nino Spirit Santo.
1: Mm. It's been a pretty underwhelming international break you know, from my point of view anyway, Glenn. Harry Kane looks off the pace, out of form, six games and Premier League games without a goal, which is his longest spell, I think, for five, six years. I suppose the question now that will be delivered in hindsight is should they have sold him?
3: Well, with hindsight at the moment, you'd say probably yes, though it depends what they would have done with the money they got and where that would have left them and how that may or may not have affected the the manager coming in. I mean, it looks like at the moment they've got the manager decision wrong. But obviously, it's early days. Kane will point out, as he did indeed this week, that he has scored nine goals in 14 matches this season, which is a pretty decent record, even if some of the opposition wasn't that strong. So, you know, he does look like he's not... I mean, he came back late, didn't he, for whatever reason. He does look a bit off the pace. I would say it does depend... You know, he's a striker. It depends on the service he's getting. He hasn't... You know, Tottenham haven't been exactly gung-ho this season. England didn't really get him into that many positions the other night. I mean, had he played against Andorra, he would have scored. Yeah, I think we can assume that would be the case. So he's a he's a good player. He has these spells. You know, you can imagine there will come a time. I see Son score during the, during the week for South Korea and will come back knackered. But obviously, you know, they've they got a good result. You know, if that starts to click again, you can say you see Spurs winning at the weekend. I mean, equally, you can see them losing. The, the results are quite unpredictable this week, this season so far. Back to the old Spurs.
1: And we're back to the old Watford, I suppose, on Saturday lunchtime in the the BT Sport game against Liverpool, Seb. Yet again, they're looking for a new manager bounce. The logic of Claudio Ranieri's appointment, is
2: he basically short-term manager, short-term club? Yeah, I I think so, Mike. I'm actually, I I didn't have a problem with Watford's decision because I, I watched them against Leeds United before the sacking occurred and they were completely lacking in personality. There's a, sort of, that side is a poor use of the talent that's at the club because there is quite a lot of ability within the squad. Ranieri is, a, to be honest, he's a, with what, just, over, just over two months left until the transfer window opens. I think it's quite a smart move because he'll come in and most likely he'll restore a lot of the morale within the side. And happy players tend to be better players. And when you've got players like Watford have... I think morale is very, very important because you certainly have the ability to survive and certainly pull clear of teams like, for instance, Norwich or Newcastle before the changes occurred. Also, I Ranieri is not someone who's going to come in and implement a, a broad ideology. What you can't have in the situation if it's a season where your aim is just to survive relegation is someone that wants to implement a three four year strategy clearly Ranieri is not at the stage of his career where he's going to be doing that this is about another little annotation on his Wikipedia page it's going to be what can the win percentage be what can the uptick be over the next year 18 months and this is not their future and I think when a when a manager comes into a club and understands that understands that he is a short term fix he's not there for five years and when someone like Ranieri is aligned to what historically has been the approach at Watford, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I don't know whether I believe in short, whether I believe in new manager bounce. I do believe in, I don't know, clubs with a little bit of personality. And Ranieri's teams, the Fulham example aside, because that was a little bit of a mess, have typically played with a bit of personality. And, and that's, a, that's a missing ingredient, Watford. So I like it and I, I think they will improve as a result of it.
3: I think it's nice to have him back in, back in England. Uh, yeah, I mean I agree. It's, a, it's a good stuff. I mean, Tom Roddy did. I mean, it's incredible uh, the time he's been around. I mean, he made the point that he replaces someone who played for him at Valencia. In his previous job at Fulham, the man who he replaced, Savisa Djokanovic, was his first sign at Chelsea. The man who replaced him, Scott Parker, was his last sign at Chelsea. I mean, it has been, been in the game <laughs> so long. And he, he, like the owners, comes from a culture where managers come and go with uh, complete regularity and no one blinks an eyelid. It's just, you know, you get through several managers a season, quite a lot of clubs and it's just part of the way things go. But Watford is interesting. There was a, Probably the most powerful man there, Scott Duxbury, the uh, chief exec. And he did an interview at the, at the end of last season saying they feel that you know, they lost their way a bit with their DNA, which their DNA was, uh, was with the, the uh, Rookery podcast. We've always been about getting the top young players that will come through, like Simon Richarlison, and then he moves on, whereas we were Simon Richarlison, that was established Premier League player. That's not who we are. Now we're going to go in with a competitive squad, you know, rigid way structure, young, hungry players. They've signed Danny Rose, Musa Sizoko, Josh King, and Drewes Krujka. Uh, King's the youngest at 29. I mean, of course Emmanuel Denise is the sort of signing he's talking about. But it does look like somewhere during the summer that the plan that they thought about pre-season didn't quite happen. But so Rani comes in with this slightly disorganized squad, but he yeah, he, he knows what he's doing. You know, I'm sure he will get them together and they will start playing some better football and they will pick up results. Yeah, it's only if you're the other clubs towards the end. I mean, the bottom end. I mean, suddenly Newcastle have lots of money. Watford, the new manager, knows what he's doing. It does make one or two of them think, well, this is a bit more of a concern now. Mm. Liverpool,
1: Jürgen Klopp celebrated his sixth anniversary during the break, Seb.
2: Simple question, really. How much longer do you expect him to be around there? I don't think it's a short-term situation, Mike. I I think it's not a situation he would have necessarily welcomed, but Liverpool's dropping off a little bit last season... Has kind of created a new challenge. Like he's built a championship-winning side, he's built a European Cup-winning side. The next phase: can you rebuild it? And that's really interesting. And I, I if you, I, I think the, the, I think Klopp's future is always going to be linked to what else exists away from Liverpool. He's not going to be getting the Germany job anytime soon. Hansi Flick is in situ and there's been a, an uptick in performances there, so that's that's off the table for a while. I don't ever see him managing Bayern Munich really. I know that. There's a lot of admiration for him there, but Nagelsmann is there for the long term. So where else would he go? And I think it's a really interesting project. Like I I, I think you've got that front three coming towards the end of their time at the very top of the game, still playing extremely well, of course, but then you're trying to rebuild it around maybe a kind of a Diogo Jota character. The defence needs a sort of an adjustment. Virgil van Dijk remains an excellent player, but Ibrahim Kanate is there too. He's only actually started one game this season, but then... He's there for what would hopefully be another decade, you'd hope, before things go well. So I'm not privy to any inside knowledge about it, but it, it's not something that you would walk away from. Brilliant new training facilities there, great club. I know the um, new stand at Anfield isn't really new anymore, but the atmosphere is more intense than it's been for a very, very long time. And, you know, fans have just come back and like you don't, the way Liverpool are playing too, Mike, you don't see any of the kind of the looseness that you associate with sort of end of era football. In fact, quite the opposite. I mean, some of the passages of play, it may be not the results, but some of the passages of play this season have been reminiscent of two or three years ago. Everything looks very, very healthy at Liverpool.
1: Yeah, and I know this isn't an original thought, but when you compare them to Manchester United, you do see the vibrancy of where they are and and also the certainty, the sense of, yeah, we know where we're going. Manchester United, Glenn, are at Leicester at the weekend Vulnerable, given Maguire and Varane won't be around. Would you You know, basically trust your pay packet on Lindelof and, and Bailey?
3: Well, no, not really. <laughs> yes, you would say they are, because <laughs> Varley's been in decent form and he enjoys the break that he gets now in international football. Leicester are showing signs of coming back to life, and I think Brendan Rodgers, you know, nailing his you know, colours to the mast. I'm definitely staying. I think that will give him a bit of a lift. You know, it shows the players. the you know, manager still believes in us. We've we've had a iffy start, but I think that will help. Uh, I would say this is a difficult fixture. It's going to be quite. Yeah, they they've become quite a combination very quickly, Maguire and Varane, and and losing both your centre-halves. As a Liverpool fan last year, I mean, this would affect any club. Arsenal have had problems in centre-half for for a couple of seasons. Arguably, your two centre-halves are probably the two most important players in your team, in terms of avoiding losing and giving you a platform to win matches. And to lose both of them when you've got a good structure is obviously going to be be a problem. So, again, they're a little bit unpredictable, but I would say that's one of those games you're looking at well. I mean, Leicester beat them in the Cup last year, obviously, didn't they? But I think they lost in the league But that's certainly a game you can see it could be the spring ball for Leicester to pick up again um, and yet more problems for United
2: it's it's really interesting to to look at Leicester though isn't it because I, I spoke to a Leicester supporting friend of mine a couple of days ago and he talked about the Fofana injury that happened in that pre-season game against Villarreal terrible tackle should never have been made kind of scissor tackle in pre-season it's just nonsense but they've never really been the same since and for my money he's their best defender without him You've seen the kind of the, the flaws in Suyen You know, it's not quite the same. Also, they've lost Wilfred and Didi for, I think it's about six weeks. And they are never, never, never the same side without Ndidi. So I think Leicester, like, it's been a bad start. And I, as Glenn said, it, it, for a variety of reasons, it really wouldn't surprise me if they click into gear. But they've got bigger issues than perhaps we're sort of paying attention to. And I think they've been slightly lost in the news cycle. Because if you go back to maybe late July, early August, I think most people have said that they've had a brilliant summer. They're loaded to go again at, not the title, but the top four. They could win a domestic cup. They could be very, very competitive in Europe. And it's not great. It's not great. And also, some of those individual performances are not great. I think Madison's been quite disappointing. I think his last 18 months has been quite disappointing, actually. So there's all kinds of little subplots at Leicester. And, and it's just interesting to, to line them up against the Manchester United team who have been now massively destabilised by defensive issues.
3: Well, Johnny Evans has obviously been out as well. So, of I mean, exactly. like United, yeah. they've lost, you know, the two key centre halves. And you're right; he's exposed some of the others.
1: Well, when you look at Leicester, you know, we praised their recruitment, didn't we, Glenn? And we've seen we we've yet to see the fruits of that investment.
3: hasn't quite happened this year, has it? Yeah. Again, it just looks like because they've lost one or two key players that you, you do need that framework to bring players through. On, So, I mean, it, it's after several years of. Yeah, almost making the Champions League. Maybe it is the season, sort of transition. But well, uh, but yeah, you we're know, sort of we putting things back together again. But okay, there's the scope. I mean, there's always scope for someone to come through it hits a bit of form, uh, you know, to get into that third or fourth place. So the season's you know a long way to go yet there. Mm.
1: Chelsea, Sember, uh at Brentford. Lukaku left the Belgian camp early due to quotes muscle fatigue close quotes which. Seem quite expedient. Chelsea being Chelsea, they're always linked with players. They've been linked with a, a potential return of Eden Hazard. Do they really need him? Ah,
2: would be a terrible mistake. Like, just... Eden Hazard's sale to Real Madrid is one of the best deals that Marina Graniscar has ever struck. Why would you? Why would you? Why would you let them off the hook? I still think Hazard will come to life a little bit in Madrid. Like, he's had a few... Combination with uh, Karen Benzema has not with you know any great material effect, but there, there's a stirring there, and I think that'll be, um, you know, he'll 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 improve. But also, you've moved on in his position. Look at the attacking players they have in their side. Like, why, why would you, why would you sacrifice playing time or playing space for someone like Kai Havertz for Eden Hazard in his thirty, in, uh, a player known as thirties. And also, when you when you think about Hazard's effect in England, remember how often he used to get kicked and how much physical attention he used to attract. So he is, he is older than his years. You don't want any part of that. The Lukaku thing, I think, is more interesting, though, because Lukaku, strangely enough, despite the differences in coaching and, and playing personnel and, and squad differences, there's, there's a similar, like, failing with Lukaku in the sense that he's being kind of, as, as has been seen at other clubs, he's being sort of used as a target man sometimes. And you think that's, the, that's, that's a great mistake with Lukaku because he's very capable in those areas. Like we all know that he can, you know, back up a centre-half and bring players behind him into the game. Absolutely. But he is not just that guy. He's not Lee Chapman. You know, he's, 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 a, he's a much more three-dimensional footballer. And there's a little bit too much space between him and his supporting players. And funny thing with Lukaku, I've always felt that he's quite sensitive to criticism and he's also quite sensitive to pressure and when there's a conversation around him about lack of goals or lack of shots or inability to perform against big big, big clubs you know those were the staples of his career in England before he left for Inter Milan you always feel that his form slightly responds to that in in quite a negative way and I think he's being done a disservice I think he's I I still don't think that Tickle has kind of woven him into the Chelsea tapestry as he should do not as he should do but as he might do or as he will do in the future so that's one to watch, but I, I, I'm not quite sure what muscle fatigue actually means. I mean, literally, I can have a guess at it, but I don't know what it means in terms of missing games or performance. Or, you know, it sounds like Chelsea are getting a player back early from international football, and that sounds like a good thing to me.
3: So I, I think his muscles would have been fine if they reached the final. Yeah,
2: that's <laughs> yeah, quite so. Yeah,
3: he's got a cracking goal against France. I mean, I don't he think did, there's yeah. um, anything wrong with his form. He right? looks fine
2: to me, yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah. What what about Brentford, Glenn?
1: Only one defeat in their opening seven games. There was an interesting piece by Adrian Clark, late of this parish looking at the the tactical aspects of Brentford this season, perhaps going a bit more direct to to Tony and, and Waymo,
3: efficient at set pieces. What have you made of them? Well, they've been terrific. I mean, obviously, the, the fantastic start. I mean, that home game against Arsenal, the, the atmosphere and, and beating yeah, a, a genuine you know, top club at home in your first game is just the sort of launch pad you need when you've just been promoted. And that gives you belief. It makes the players feel they can live at this level because, obviously, most of them haven't played at all in the Premier League. So that's a huge bonus. And, and they built on that. They, they've been refreshing. They've been uh, quite attractive to watch. They've got a gung-ho spirit, especially at home. they a very good win at West Ham. The Liverpool game was great entertainment. You know they are going longer to an extent than they were last year, but that's not a great surprise when you consider that they're clearly you know, in a division where last year they were one of the top sides. So therefore they would have had a lot of possession. This year they've had, you know, they're not one of the top sides, so they've had less possession. So they've had to defend more, which means inevitably you're looking to counter attack a bit. You've got good counter attacking players there. You might as well use that while you can. So that, and um, they've also been very shrewd on set pieces. They've they scored a lot of goals on set pieces relatively. Yeah, you know, and that's. Yeah, that's a, that's a key part. It's always been a key part of the game. And it's, it, the funny thing is, however much football changes, however much development there is in the way tactics are played, however fitness and stuff set pieces remain tremendously important not necessarily corners yeah there's always a great war in english grounds when they get a call oh great we've got a corner get score. score. well actually <laughs> actually your chances of scoring from the corner aren't really that great in fact in these days you might concede from a corner because teams are so good at breaking on you i think um, it's at about what, one or two percent somewhere
2: between the scoring rate from corners i think in english mm. football
3: it's, it's it's free kicks to the extent yeah as as well or throw ins I mean they score from that as well haven't they so they've clearly put a bit of work into that yeah and it's paid off you know it is those fine margins I mean Sam Allardyce was doing that years ago and you can go w- way back and, yeah set pieces are still a fantastic opportunity it's one of the very very few occasions in in uh, football when you can set the play like you can a lot in American football or baseball or you know, or, or lots of sports it's one of the very few occasions when you can have a plan. Which isn't going to be massively affected by what the opposition are doing to an extent. Yeah. And you can set the play and, and, and yeah, start from a blank sheet. And then they're making the most of it.
1: Yeah. Manchester City, Seb, Phil Foden has agreed a new six year deal, had a decent international break. Is he, you think, the symbol of of the, the latest Pep team, which is probably still evolving?
2: Yeah, because in him, you get the sense that. You know, no matter how many times you watch him, you still think there are kind of more shades to to his playing profile that, that are going to emerge. Like he he reveals, a, it feels like he's at the stage where he, he reveals a different side of himself every time he plays, different skill, different touch, different turn, a like different way of shooting, scoring. And I suppose with that kind of player, the question becomes, what can you build around him? Like the, the, the main difference between him and say someone like Jack Grealish, like fabulous player that Grealish is, is... Um, Foden is more agile you can do more things with him you can put him in more areas you can combine him with many more different types of footballer and so in in the same way that we said about Jürgen Klopp it's it's interesting like I think someone like Foden is a is very good at enlivening a head coach particularly someone like Guardiola who's very details orientated who likes to think about the game is very much a technocrat so you, you kind of you have this piece it's like having a you know, a new tool to go into the garage with and mess about with your car. It's it's that kind of thing. Something gets invented, given to you. Right, go and do your worst with this. And I I think he's absolutely he's key to to Manchester City's literal future. But I think he's I think he's very important for for the time being to how the coach and the team. I don't know what I'm trying to say the the kind of the relationship between the two and the the amount of attention because I I think. I think head coaches have always been provoked by interesting players in a good way. And he's an example of that. And he's very, very special. I mean, he, I like you two, I did not have a great time watching England during this international break. I think we all saw that coming a mile away. But I did watch, enjoy watching him. And that's kind of telling that even in an environment which is a bit stale, where everyone knows that they've kind of qualified and it's fine, he can still be just so captivating. Just what a wonderful footballer.
3: And it's important to the club because he's a local boy. You know, when you've got this massive international club with lots of you know, foreign owners, foreign managers, lots of foreign players, to, to have a guy from just down the road you know, at a core of the club is quite important.
1: Yeah, they've got um, Burnley at home at the weekend, Glenn. Burnley and, and Norwich, who've got Brighton at Carrow Road, let's be honest here, are those two locked into some sort of death spiral here? <laughs>
3: It does not look very promising, does it? I mean, it's a, there's a long way to go, but uh, in both clubs, for different reasons, it looks like, well, in Burnley's case, gravity, may financial gravity, may be finally catching up with them. The new owners, uh, of course, you tell, new owners with uh, allegedly some money aren't necessarily a great boon to a club. Indeed, the question is how much money they've actually got. And, and noise appearing at the moment, that epitome of the, the yo yo club, the West Bob of old, and so on, the Crystal Palace of old, too good for one division, not good enough for the other division. Be interesting to see whether I mean Brighton coming is obviously an interesting contrast to the fact they've got up and stayed up. made one manager would change. Obviously has proven to be a very good one. Only one of their new signings from the summer played against Arsenal last weekend, Cucharella. It's largely last year's team. I, mean, I know you know there is more money in terms of the ownership of Brighton than there is at noise, but it's not as if they're spending vast amounts. I mean they've largely financed their spending with Ben White. Very good coaching, I would say, is the difference of Brighton at the moment. And they've got, yeah, momentum helps. Yeah, noise needed an early win. That early win that Brentford got, noise needed an early win. Instead, they played, I think they played Liverpool early on, didn't they? And they got well beaten and they've looked a bit of a mess at the back. And they're, they're, their signings don't look particularly inspiring. It doesn't look that great for them. I mean, mind you, one is, uh, you know, if either of them get a win, well, I can't see Burnley winning, but you never know. But if noise get a result, Yeah, you know, one result changes everything in football has formed a whole mood around the club. But assuming Newcastle will buy their way
1: out eventually, who's most vulnerable to being sucked into that bottom three, do you think, Seb? You know, I look around and I look at Southampton. You know, when you see stories emerging of players expecting the manager to be sacked, you know, it's a pretty reliable indicator of, of instability, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's not great. And also, I think if you look at the players that have left... And what's gone with them, goals, you know, I I think particularly Danny Ng It's like you, if you think back to the last couple of seasons and think where Southampton would be without his goals, it's very easy to conclude that there's a there's a problem. I don't know where I stand on Ralph Hassenhutel's future. I just think that we we've talked a lot about recruitment, you know, over, over the past hour. And I think if you go back to Southampton's first few years back in the Premier League, like you think back to the sort of the Pochettino time, what they were good at and Comen as well. Recruitment. You know, they didn't, didn't have a 100% strike rate, but they bought players who were very effective and they were very effective very quickly. And they had to be because they would lose a Sadio Mane to, to Liverpool, for instance, and an Adam Lallana, and they'd have to come back and reproduce with a Dusan Tadic. And that ability seems to be lost. And that's been the problem. And I, I think that, I think Ralf is a fine coach. I think actually some of his worst moments reflect quite well on him in, in 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 within their context because he's twice suffered very humiliating losses, sort of stand losses, and come back to repair the team and, and progress. And that's a that's a I don't know what that is, but it's positive. And you look at him now and you think we well, doesn't really have the tools. Is there anyone at Southampton that, that anyone's particularly excited about from a development standpoint? Shea Adams is quite a good player, probably a better player than we thought he was going to be. Elie Nuce's had a bit of a kind of a revival. Okay, no, I don't know about the rest of it. James Ward-Prowse has been a kind of the, you know, a, a coming entity in English football for quite a long time and he played okay for England. I, it's not, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not convinced. And if you had to pick one, I think you would have still picked Southampton prior to the Newcastle takeover. I don't think Newcastle's situation is that simple. I mean, I don't, They're not going to march in an army of, you know, of overwhelmingly brilliant reinforcements in January. You might get James Tarkovsky, maybe, and that would be an improvement. But there are still so many unanswered questions. So I don't see a situation where everything's going to click there and it's going to be fine. I think it will be a pressurised season until probably April or May. But Newcastle, I, I think maybe Burnley, not enough has changed there. I mean, the fullbacks have changed, good, but... Uh, there's not enough variety ahead of those players at the moment and it just feels a little bit stale so you know beyond obviously Norwich who are going to suffer a little bit I think this season yeah those are the two I'd worry for mm. Yeah you talk about you know, pressurised
1: situations I just want to end by looking at the almost like the physical and mental pressures on the players themselves I think it's up to 16 Premier League players from South America might miss this weekend because of the whole global situation, really. Both of you, really, are players ready to start voting with their feet, perhaps, about international football? I thought it was really significant, Glenn. Thibaut Courtois was basically saying, look, they don't care about the players, they just care about their pockets.
3: You understand that? Well, I do understand that. I mean, third-place playoffs are pointless, sort of pointless matches in any circumstances, unless there's some kind of qualification at the end of it. I, I can see where it's coming from. I don't think international football is necessary. The problem, I mean, funnily enough, this is... Venga's sort of um, olive branch, isn't it? That you, you pack all the internationals into one area to stop some of this travelling and stop some of the movement. I mean, international football—you you could might point the finger at more in terms of the carbon footprint that it creates as much as anything. Yes, yeah. Um, yes. mm-hmm. you know, but that applies to quite a lot of things going on in football. You know, like Arsenal flying to Norwich, sort of thing. It's not a secret that there are far too many matches demanded of far too few players. The way around it is either lots of rotation, and that's a risk, obviously, because every time you lose because you've rested players, you get sorted if you're the manager. And all managers operate them increasingly short cycles, whether it be international or club level. And, yeah, players... I mean, medical science in some respects is because players now recover so much quicker because the medical science is so much better. They, they don't get the longer breaks they often did have with some muscular injuries. You know, they've got the boots and the, and the, the trousers that you wear and also, you know, the, the oxygen tents and so on. They, you come back so much quicker from injury than you used to. So players tend to be on the pitch more, the intensity is raised a bit more. But it's not easy to see an answer. I mean, let's be honest, players are not clamoring for pay cuts either. They're not saying, I will play less matches and you can pay me less money. Yeah, you know, uh, and their agents aren't saying we'd all we'd all take a ten percent pay cut if we can negotiate ten percent less matches. You know, it is. There are two sides to this, so there is no easy answer because the game, as we we're back where we started, the game basically involves our money.
2: Yeah, agree with that, Seb. Yeah, just about. I, th- I think the fundamental point is an issue that Glenn has raised. There is that you, you can't depend on people within the game to solve this problem. You're not going to. You can't charge a head coach with limiting. Playing time because he's under pressure and he might lose his job. Similarly, like, well, players may voice their discontent. Are they going to walk away from an appearance related bonus? Probably not. And why why should we ask them to? It's their contract. And, you know, so you have to look at overarching change and it has to come from above. Ultimately, what this is, everything, two year World Cup cycle is about staking out part of the industrial complex, making sure that nobody else can expand into that area. And eventually, someone somewhere from somewhere within the industrial complex is going to have to make a concession. You know, you can't keep having all your competitions and all your fixtures and you're saying, well, I'm not going to give way to this part of the game because I don't want to lose any territory here. And I don't want to lose my marketing revenue, my broadcasting revenue, because, you know, by, by shaving a couple of games off a Champions League or a Europa League or a couple of, of Doris, it's, it's all too ingrained. And so you need a grown-up in the room and we don't have that. We just have a lot of people with hands in each other's pockets, unfortunately. Um, actually, and- you
3: know, I, I was going to say, I don't think actually the, the, the matches themselves are really the problem. It's all the stuff that goes around. I mean, on me very, made true. very, very true. on me made that very important point about it took him a year to recover from a World Cup mentally. It's all the stuff. The I don't think any of us literally being in this situation can... Can gather the enormity of the pressure going around matches when there are so much, like so many people watching. Yeah, you know, when you apologise for missing penalties and uh, yeah, and those sort of things. Uh, Georgia Stanway, even the women's game, apologising for being sent off because he has been abused. The social, the rise of social media, the the, uh, the, the constant glare. Uh, I think that living in the golfers' bowl all the time, pressure made worse by the bubble situation we've had in the last year and a half. I mean, cricket's got particularly bad. Yeah, that that all that stuff that goes around it means players find it now very hard to switch off. Yeah, they're no longer allowed to go down the pub and get bladdered, for example, Yeah, which was the way you could relax in the past. So they gamble, which is much more damaging in, in terms of mental health.
1: Yeah, well, the, the fact remains, doesn't it, that unless something gives, injuries are going to increase, standards are going to fall. Now, if you think that's alarmist, consider this. According to some figures issued by FIFPRO, the uh, international players' trade union, Ruben Diaz played 69 matches for club and country last season He averaged 92 minutes a game He travelled 172,144 kilometres by air His off-season break lasted nine days He's had only 33 days off in the summer in three years Now yes, he's been Manchester City's standout player But for how long? I shudder to think There's a lot to think about here. Uh, In the meantime, thanks to Seb and Glenn for their insight, and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.